Hey, Behind the Prosers, I am back with an episode that you've been waiting for. I know Scott Alexander has has been waiting for. God bless him. He was so gracious. I interviewed him in August, okay? It's almost October, but nevertheless, it is just as potent as it was the day I recorded it. Check out his bio on BehindThePros.com, but here is Scott Alexander Hess talking to me about his latest work of literary fiction, The Butcher's Son. Today we are talking to Scott Alexander Hess. Scott has an MFA in creative writing from the New School, and as you know, I also went to the New School, and actually another New School connection, how I learned of Scott was through a former classmate at the new school who is his publicist, um, Brittany Inman Canty, which I think uh, Canty is her, or Canty is her married name now. And um, so it's all new school up in here today. Welcome, Scott. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And we are going to talk about your new novel, which is called The Butcher's Sons. And this is your first book? No, it's my third. It's your third, third. Your third. This is your yeah, third. Yeah, my third third novel. Um, it's my first, um, I, you know, I moved a little more into literary fiction and historical fiction. So it's, it's a new uh, movement for me as a writer. Um, and what were your two previous ones? The first, uh, speaking of the new school, my thesis at the new school was Bergdorf Boys. And um, my... That was the first book I wrote. Uh, my second book was The Diary of a Sex Addict, mm. and that was the first book published. And it was a bit, it was a bit more of a subversive uh, book. I have, right out of school, uh, you know, my MFA at the New School, I was really into um, Mary Gateskill and, and kind of subversive and transgressive and uh, Brett Easton Ellis and just pushing the envelope. So. That was the project that became The Diary of the Sex Addict. Um, it was a very different kind of a book, um, trying to use language to numb the reader. And, and um, you know, it was a, a different type of a modern story. Uh, and Bergdorf Boys was my thesis, um, also set in New York City. And then after that is when I started moving into a little more, became inspired by Carmack McCarthy, William Faulkner, people like that, and uh, became a little more literary, poetic, uh, language-focused, and um, writing in historical time periods. Mm. And so let's unpack that. You said that this book would be considered literary historical fiction. And mm-hmm. for people who might not necessarily be familiar with those terms, and I'm coming from the nonfiction side, so for myself oh, okay. as well, I gotcha. would say... From reading this, I think that when people say the the, the word uh, literary or the term literary, we mean that the prose or the writing is very like description heavy and sort of not slow in a way, but deliberate in how it is using metaphors and language and kind of making um, just weaving in details with the narrative that means something more or, or, or I, can, can you explain right. what, what would you consider literary? Yeah. I mean, I would just say language becomes primary language drives this, 
the, the writing, the story, um, uh, symbolism, and all five senses. It becomes a very a richer and fuller um, type of language. Um, mm. And not that the story is secondary, but to me, language is primary. The, uh, visuals, um, description, um, rhythms of writing, language choice, just the whole. I tend to be a bit stream of consciousness and a bit, uh, you know, I, I kind of let it flow. Um, and that type of, a little more poetic in the language. Um, and, you know, sometimes I suppose larger concepts might come through um, in what I, you know, consider, I mean, I have my favorites and my idols um, and that would, to me, term it uh, literary fiction, I guess, as opposed to popular fiction or um, something that's a little more focused just on story, you know, and mm -hmm. getting the story out, um, which is a, is a, is a talent too. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's, I see literary is mostly a language focused, driven by that. And so I've started taking notes um, more deliberately when I'm reading through some of the books. Usually I'll just write in the margins. And then when I go back to interview someone, I have to, I'm like, where did I write that note? So now yeah. I'm trying something different. Um, and I've written down a lot of the notes that I have are, you know, language-based elements. And one of them that you've mentioned there in terms of like the nature, I said, you use elements like light and nature, or I found mm -hmm. come, you know, throughout the book. And right. for example, on page 59, uh, which is, so let's do a little book is about three brothers who are um, growing, they're in New York and they're the butcher's sons. They're their father. Their father is a butcher. They own a butcher shop. And um, you can probably explain it a little bit better than me. I was explaining it in the way I read it. I understood it. Um, okay. You know, they, they end up, <sighs> they end up becoming one how oh, they end up becoming a sort of a part they try to to form a gang um one of led by Dickie who is the second the middle brother and um they get into all kinds of mess but at the same time they're really like kind of figuring out who they are and they each have their own storylines in terms of like relationships and then there's this one storyline i feel that's in also in terms of you know, coming to terms with their dad and how mm -hmm. he's different since their mom died. Um, it, 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 so overall, before we like, I think that the book is, I love the book. I read it like, again, I read it in a day. And, um, and I, I did find myself going to really noting about some of the ways that you use language it, with the metaphors, like within nature. So for this example, I'm on page 59. And they are, where are they at this time? They're in the kitchen mm -hmm. with their dad. And I think this is when the dad is cooking for them. Right, right. And at the end, you say, they all chewed eight while the wren sang. Then another bird joined, some calling thing, a violent, more reckless call, an angry shrillness that filled the room with something mean but bright. And right. so my question was, are details like that come to you? Are they organic or do you focus on those in, in revision and how? No, they're organic. Um, they do. I t tend to write 
um, I'm a bit of a method writer. I get into the feeling of the scene of it. And I tend to spit out all my language, all my, uh, you know, the story, the writing in my first draft. And then when I go back and revise, it's usually about toning down or clarifying and things like that. But I'm always um, into uh, the the weather, uh, the, the, the the tactile senses um, within a story uh, of the the animals, but the, the whole world, like nature, as you said, the natural world. And to me, the elements of the world become like a character, um, whether it's the heat of the apartment or the birds outside the window or the, because the, the, you know, the world we live in, they happen to be in Hell's Kitchen, 1930, very gritty. And um, I always see the entire landscape, you know, they're in a tenement walk-up, but they're these beautiful little birds outside the window. And so the juxtaposition earlier in the scene, they mentioned how they can feel the coolness from the meat cooler below and just below them is all these, you know, carcasses of, of, of meat, of animals. And then they're in their kitchen and outside is a beautiful bird. And then there's violence on the street. And so when I write, especially in that book, it felt like a very um, sensual book in terms of uh, all the elements of life and every chapter, every segment I wrote, I would always try to be aware of uh, all the segments, um, all the senses, you know, almost like an actor, like all the senses, like the, not just the character and what they look like and how they're feeling and so forth, but what the world around them is doing and how it's Mm -hmm. influencing their choices, their actions. Um, uh, There's also a heat wave throughout the whole summer. So I use the heat a lot throughout the book. Mm to kind of aggravate and propel things that are already happening. Mm. And you, uh, that's one of the notes that I have under that actually about your writing is I have cinematic writing. Uh, That's the kind of vibe that I got from reading the book. Right. Yeah. I do see things very visually. Um, And do I had written screenplays in the past. Um, and mm-hmm. I, so I, I do have a visual, a visual sense of things. And I also did some acting. I think all those elements, uh, and also, as I mentioned, I'm in love with, um, Carmack McCarthy and William Faulkner, both who, uh, I learned those, some of those, um, I don't know if I call them techniques, but that's, they, they include that in a lot of their passages where you, I would read it and just really feel um, the landscape, the, the, the country, the, um, you know, the weather, the, all the elements of life around the characters. And that influenced me a lot when I was initially starting. Mm. So uh, let's talk about the book is about really these three brothers. And again, mm-hmm. you can please school me on the, um, the, stab I'm about to make. I think that the narrator is, is, I feel like, so the book switches, we see from different, what the different brothers are doing, but I don't feel like it's right. third person close. I feel like the narrator's omniscient, but I might be wrong. Cause again, I'm not a fiction person. So what did you right. think that, what was, what do you? Yeah, no, it's omniscient and it, mm-hmm. it is the overview. Um, mm-hmm. 
and then we, you know, it, it does have the omniscient and the, the overview uh, narrative narrator, the God's eye view, and then you get inside of each of their 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 heads or emotions. I mean, I think ultimately, the youngest brother, Adelaide, uh, who is the the gay brother who ends up having the illicit affair uh, with the oldest brother, Dickie's um, bug friend, Big Ed. Um, he, I think, grows and changes the most and so carries the thread of the book um, mm-hmm. to me the most. Um, and he's the weakest. I mean, initially he's the youngest and weakest and the one no one notices. Um, but, yeah, it's definitely that that overview. Um, now, the book I'm writing right now is called um, The River Runs Red, and I've very specifically chosen to um, write in first person from multiple points of view. Mm. So um, Mm -hmm. it's set in 1890 in St. Louis, and I'm writing from three very, well, actually now four very different characters in first person um, from their point of view. So um, that's a very different book. If someone asked me, they said, well, wouldn't it be better if you did it third person, um, and so forth. But, you know, this new book, it very much lends itself to that. Mm. Well, I guess the three, uh, it was originally called Three Brothers, um, The Butcher's Sons. I felt lent itself to that, that arc, arching overview, that, that God, you know, big voice above kind of looking at what's happening to these three young men. And then we get glimpses inside of them, but it felt like a, uh, a book that needed that that kind of narrative as opposed mm-hmm. to the, the mm-hmm. one I'm writing now it feels like it needs to be closer you know if that makes sense mm-hmm. and when you said about you feel like that Adlai is the um, I, I forget the exact word that you use now but like the sort of the not the central character but you said you phrased it nicely um, the, do you remember exactly what you said a minute yeah. ago <laughs> yeah who knows? <laughs> probably, yeah. um, but she, but, but he kind of draw, drives the story through. Yeah, yes. He's kind of the thread that it begins, you know, Dickie is the, is the violent, the oldest, mm-hmm. the strongest, um, and propels the action initially, and Adelaide's very much in the background, but it's Adelaide's journey that he changes the most. Mm-hmm. He slowly emerges out of the shadows and then come, you know, then has this gay love affair, which in 1930 was, you know, very Mm -hmm. risky. And, and then by the end has changed the most and uh, kind of come to terms with themselves. While the other two were a little more formed uh, as they go through change, but not as much as, as Adelaide. One of the things, one of the, uh, one of the, I was going to say one of the things that I think I noticed about, Adlai being sort of the driving force is early on, I have this note, I said, narrator drops clues that Adlai is different because um, mm-hmm. there is this moment when Adlai is writing in the sand or the sawdust or something, savage. He's writing the word savage. And right, he wants, right. he's thinking, I want to write beautiful savage. Um, but eh, he doesn't think it in Iowa. That's what, we know that the narr- we know that's what he's thinking in the dirt. And then um, there's also a so we, we see that he's different and right. we begin to think, hmm, okay, what's, what's that of this? And then there's the, 
the man in the alley gives him right. the um the note and we remember and there's a phrase like boys uh boys someplace where boys like him went and so we right. kind of get all right there's gonna be some type of journey with Adlai. Uh, right. how did these characters come to you uh how did and i say that because i've been talking to people who write novels and they say sometimes that they'll sit down to write and they just start to kind of hear a voice and they follow that voice i mean did you get the i did this come out of free writing did you sit down with the idea to write a novel about three brothers yeah this um was different in the way that i read a book um called uh, The Wettest County in the World by Matthew Bonteron. It's a beautiful book. And it was about three brothers uh, in Virginia during Prohibition. They made it into a film called Lawless with Tom Hardy. And I am one of three brothers. Um, and and my I am the youngest. There's a middle and there's an older. And we had a restaurant equipment company. So uh, this book, unlike some of my other books, which are just, you know, hatched out of my mind. Who knows? People often say, where do you get the inspiration? I'm like, I don't know. It's just little bits and pieces of life stick to me. And then I'm like, oh, let me let me go in this direction. But this one specifically, I was fascinated by that movie and these three brothers close in age, but very different. And then I started thinking about my own journey and my brothers, and they are back in St. Louis. Uh, and it was a restaurant equipment company, so it, it wasn't a butcher shop in 1930. Stories I created were different, but it was initially inspired by this concept of myself and my two brothers, and also a very masculine world. It was my first um, book where I really wanted to focus on masculinity mm-hmm. um, and heterosexual masculinity. And, you know, because I came from a uh, a family in a restaurant business that was very uh, uh, masculine, very, uh, a big warehouse and old saws and tough guys, and which I did not engage with. I moved to New York. But um, it, that's what initially engaged me. I'm like, I want to write a really masculine book. I want to get into the world. And that's why the mother is dead. The, and, and initially, I was going to have no no female voices in the book, but then I decided to have that each of them had a relationship. Um, and it was more inspired by the older brother, Dickie, um, because he was a type of man that I never related to, never saw myself as. So as a writer and as a man, I wanted to explore, okay, what's what's going on with, let me, let me write as this type of character and Dickie is a fighter and violent. And um, then he has that affair with a a black woman, which again in the thirties was Mm -hmm. a very risky behavior. And then that led to, you know, to the creation of the all three brothers and and so forth. So Mm -hmm. um, So talk a little bit about um, the Dickie character. So on page 30, I'm like, Dickie's an asshole. I'm like, Oh my God, this guy's an asshole. Right. (laughs) How do you right. get there? How do you get there as a writer? It, making him an asshole. Yeah. Like, how um, do you, how do you, how do you, how, do you, how did you, you know what I mean? Like, what did you look at to say, all right, what are the, the he's pushing, he's well, fighting with his brothers. He's. I think that that's where my 
my time as an actor, um, and, and when I call myself a method writer, mm. um, and also I read, I, I, I did, I read some articles about, uh, actually, when I read um, American Psycho, um, and it thought in some ways it was brilliant, and I have read that if you're going to um, write a despicable character, either the language needs to be so beautiful that you draw people in, or his point of view has to be so authentic mm. that the reader will will follow. Um, and But beyond that, when I started with Dickie, as I was saying about the actor thing, when I worked as an actor and a method actor, you, you kind of become a person. So if I'm supposed to be playing a mean asshole, you know, a bigot or, or anything, you have to embody that and just think as that person thinks. And also I think people that have a certain point of view that on the outside we may find it despicable, but in their own minds they they justify it. They they you know, that they see the truth in what they're doing in some way. They make sense of their world. So when I write a character like Dickie he is led by his, I mean, I, for me, he also was more animalistic. He was kind of led by his gut, and there was that um, veil wasn't so much there. He he would be led emotionally by his gut, and he'd just go for it. Um, but I had to let him be who he is and, and let him embrace himself and let him just go forward, and it all made sense to him. And then, you know, my goal was that then he's truthful and organic, and, um, you know, and ultimately, I there's always that fine line when I work with my writer's group that's like, well, you don't want him to be so despicable the audience turns away. So when I introduced his relationship with Eva, I felt that in some ways offered a softer view or a, a humanistic view of him. Mm-hmm, and we mm-hmm. got to see at least... Um, some of his vulnerability because mm-hmm. um, he is a killer, you know, in essence. Mm-hmm. In a funny thing, there are so many different directions I want to go with you. Um, so in terms of the three brothers, you have obviously three very different characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and did you, in terms of crafting the characters, how did you, I don't want to say make them different, but how did you decide how different they were going to be or, you know, where their lines were? Was it in terms of like sketching out, um, outlining like who these people were? Or I don't tend to literally outline. I tend mm-hmm. to write and discover as I go. And, and, and I use a lot of external um, inspiration. Um, so... And also I had my own brothers to draw from um, pieces of their lives uh, that I took, like my middle brother wanted to be a doctor. So I gave that to the middle brother Mm -hmm. Um, and the oldest, I knew I had some sense of wanting the oldest brother to be involved in organized crime, which my, my oldest brother is not. Um, (laughs) But, and I knew I wanted him to be like this thrust, you know, like this, masculine violent thrust of the character and then i kind of knew i wanted the youngest one to be fragile and 
um, to have a coming out. And then I think I kind of balanced the one in the middle as wanted one of the brothers to be kind of uh, normal or a nice guy, or he's a brother that is the mo- most middle of the road and the one that just kind of wanted to have a nice life with a, be a doctor and marry this nice woman from Argentina. Mm-hmm. But it was not possible because he was part of a bigger picture, you know, mm-hmm. Well, and, and what you're going to say is, and on my show, like I've given up trying not to do spoilers because there's really no way to dissect plot and like how a writer came to something without. Right. And I think earlier I said that Dickie was the older, the middle one, but Walt, you're talking right. about Walt, which is the middle Walt brother who wants to one, be yeah. a doctor. Yeah. And so when you said that Adlai might make the most profound change, I kind of feel like that um Walt makes the most profound change because in the end he becomes right. the killer. Like we right. no, he goes true. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So, that is true. That's from that did point you, of view. Uh, mm-hmm, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I agree that I Walt I felt Walt changed didn't change that his change was slow. Um, mm-hmm. you know, but then fine. it was like hard. Right. Then it was just a sudden snap. Um, he was trying to remain a good person mm-hmm. as long as he could. But to me, he was the character that really wanted to be a good person, but life just kept pressing on him and pressing on him. And and then it went too far. And then finally, having lost the love of his life, it's like it kind of pushed him over the edge. And then, you know, and then he kind of gave up and went unexpectedly into crime, you know, which so- was not his his through line you know it wasn't in his life Mm -hmm. plan no not only was it not his through line and the scene that is the most where we what he is a first i guess um snap or the biggest snap is when he kills the uh snaps the neck of the father of the his girlfriend the woman that he wants to marry Right, right so as a writer did you um did you know that did, did did this just happen to Walt like and when you were writing or did this come on revision like when did you decide he was going to make that type of change um it was kind of in the moment it was in the moment of writing that scene um and I was I really got up into his head and I felt he was at his wits end and and that it and the the way I tried to, you know, I did do revisions and stuff, but the way I tried to present his mind state is that he was, he, you know, it's just, he, he went into that apartment not planning to kill someone. He thought things were going to be somehow fixed. He was holding on to a shred of hope that this, his older brother could somehow fix things and he'd walk out with his girlfriend. And when he got there and saw the scene and what was happening and then things went out of control, it's just like he kind of caved in. And then, and he's also a very large, um, a, a, a bulky or bigger guy that didn't really use his physical strength through the book. But I tried to present that he always was a bit larger. And so in that moment of, of, despair of kind of cracking it's just like snap it was just easy to snap this man's neck and put to rest the obstacle you know the whole book Mm -hmm. the the 
uh, his girlfriend, Adriana, her father, is the obstacle that does not want him mm-hmm. to uh, marry uh, his daughter. And he's always trying to get rid of that obstacle. So I think at the final moment, he, and also he was afraid of becoming his, mm-hmm. and in that moment, he becomes his brother Dickie. He just gives in and and um, is animalistic. Just, well, there's one way to get rid of him, you know, crack his neck and poof, it's over. But with, well, with Dickie, Dickie can thrive on that behavior. Walt, it, it ruined him, you know, basically he couldn't be the man he wanted to be mm-hmm. having just killed somebody. And I'm going to ask you a question. It might be, you might not be able to answer it because it's pro- might be too close to an organic process, but you say that in order to get to that scene with Walt, like he, he was going in there to not, you know, you didn't, he didn't plan to kill someone. So you see, you right. kind of tried to get up in his head and, mm-hmm. um, I'm wondering, so you're writing from the point of point of view of an omniscient narrator when you're sitting there mm-hmm. drafting and mm-hmm. um, what is that? What are you, are you thinking? Um, are you think, what, what does that mean when you were trying to get up in his head? Like, cause you're coming from the point of view of an omniscient narr- narrator. Right, you're just thinking right. like, uh, what is he going to do? You know what I mean? I kind of, I don't know, I guess I always kind of straddle both. I mean, the omniscient is the overview. He's mm-hmm. the, the, the narrator, the overview, looking and seeing, okay, this is what is happening. But that when I'm in the moment of the character, mm. you know, of what Walt is doing, I'm more, I'm specifically uh, switching into that, to the moment and exactly how Walt feels and, and emotionally where he's at and how he can reach this point. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I kind of can go back and forth mm. um, from the narrator to the um, the character themselves, mm-hmm. their specific action. And that was an important moment for in the book and, and for Walt. So that was a very, I remember working on that and, and um, finding that place and trying to take myself there and being really involved in that. Um, and so it makes, I guess it has to make emotional sense to me Mm -hmm. when I'm writing it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that's when I go beyond when the language is less, when it's the emotion or the, 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 you know, the sense of it, um, is important. Mm hmm. I wondered, I asked, I'm just, I just happened to look down at this note. I said, do, did you have to do things to soften Walt's character to make it more of a shock when he kills uh, Adriana's dad? No, Walt was always kind of the, to me, the lumbering, um, nice guy. Mm-hmm. And maybe if he'd been born into another family, he would have had a really nice life. Um, but because I kind of wanted to, through the book, um, make the statement, too, that blood is thicker than water or that that you are impacted by your family. Mm. Um, and so, well, if he had been an only child or if he had been in another family, his his spirit was that, you know, he's a nice young man and he wanted to get married and be a doctor and... and but he was surrounded by um, 
you know, the, the area he lived in, the circumstances of his life, and the influence of his, his brother, particularly Dickie, you know, the violent older brother who brought so much energy of and intensity and, and drive and violence into their world. And, you know, they loved each other as brothers, so it, it couldn't help but color his experience. Mm. Um, so, no, he, I didn't have to soften him. He was naturally gentle. Mm-hmm. It's more like, as the book went on, the world just kind of beats him up a bit. And then at the end, we see Walt take another turn uh, where we know that he ends up going to work for um, the 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 mobster guys. I found right. the Giordanos, is it? Yeah, C- uh, Carigliano. Carigliano's, yeah. Carigliano, yeah, yeah. Um, and Dickie yeah. seems to ride off into the sunset, possibly with Eva, we guess. That yeah, maybe he's not he, off and lived the life that Walt would have wanted to have. Yeah, or, well, I don't know if Dickie could quite go that far, but he's definitely <laughs> abandoned his family. Mm-hmm. He's gone with Eva. He's he's left and gone off to, um, you know, somewhere else. Um, several people said to me, what's the sequel? I'm like, I don't <laughs> there's no sequel. But, um, yeah, he's gone on to uh, to just live his life uh, somewhere else, elsewhere, um, mm-hmm. and without the, the the boundaries of his family, you know, and, and whatever that meant to him. Mm-hmm. There's an interesting choice that you make in terms of, so, all right, another, I'm flipping so many questions. Put that question on pause. So when we're, gen- and I think in general, most non- no, wait, people who aren't trained in fiction. And I uh-huh. think probably from elementary school, we learn like, or, you know, the classic structure, you build up to the climax and there's the denouement and everything is sort of resolved, right? But mm-hmm. I find that at least in really kind of looking at some of the novels that I've read over the last, you know, eight months or so doing this show, that that is not, I can't plot point the stories like that like it doesn't seem to really happen that way like for example so I was writing down what I felt like were the climaxes or so the first one I felt is we're like Dickie they built but it's early in the book though so Dickie shoots the 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 guy at the they're they go to they go to inter sort of intersect this deal or whatever that's going down and Dickie shoots someone um, mm-hmm. And then so we're building up and then the Corleanos come and they kidnap Dickie. Right. Um, and so then it sets a new chain of, of something in motion. So it's not I don't feel like there's one big if there if there, but at the same time, we do have the Adlai relationship. We know that Adlai and Ed are sneaking around and maybe we could say that that is the big buildup. But I don't know if I could really say there is a one big buildup. What do you think about that type of? Yeah, I think, you know, the the classical structure, um, you know, the build and the fall and then the resolution. um, You know, I don't know if it's as common. Um, To me, it was, um, especially with this book, I see, well, in a lot of my books, I see it in the rhythm, like the rhythm of life. Mm -hmm. Life doesn't really operate by certain rules like that. Mm. Um, So I tend to have... I two things. I tend to often start things in the middle. I, I start like in the the thrust of things, and then 
keep moving um, with the scene. And with this, with three different people having three different arcs um, that had to intersect and then come together, I think that also is what caused multiple um, conflicts. More like ocean waves or something. It's mm-hmm. like you are correct in that, you know, he intersects the deal and that began one chain of change where they're looking for Dickie. But then uh, Adelaide, you know, begins a relationship with Ed and that's another. And then halfway through, I mean, one central climax is when the father sees Adelaide kissing Ed and mm-hmm. that makes a shift. Uh, but then, you know, you have continual small climaxes and openings that keep shifting the story in new directions. And, you know, my goal is that then all these different mini climaxes and, and builds and falls kind of come together. Mm-hmm. And then we reach a finale. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's why they ended up on a farm. I wanted them, they begin in a butcher shop and then they end up on a farm mm-hmm. more in nature. Um, but it was a quiet place after all of these ups and downs and climaxes that they were just kind of stuck in a quiet place together. But then ultimately it led to that final moment, you know, which is the final climax finale. Mm-hmm. And is that something that you thought about in terms of resolving one of the storylines that is sort of implied, like they're, 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 they're estranged sort of from their dad, but they're in the same house with him. And mm-hmm. I feel like at the end it's resolved in which, and I wrote here something about page 246, a moral, like they come together there at the end, all these trials and tribulations have uh, brought them together as a family. And the right, dad right. is like kind of taking care of them now. Like, you right. know what he, is that something that you consciously knew you needed to resolve or did that happen organically? Um, well, I, th- I think it's both. It happened organically, you know, cause I just kind of work that way, but it was, I did want, um, I did want the father to step forward and become the father figure uh, mm-hmm. at the end. And that, so, you know, it begins the the sons are in charge and the father is, uh, you know, kind of lost, and then, but by the end, the sons have become lost, and the father has stepped up and um, become, you know, a father figure again, and is able to get them to the farm and keep them safe and unify them together, almost as if they're boys again. Um, so that was intentional in in his journey and in their journey in that. You know, they because there's points in the book where where they just feel he's kind of useless and they Mm -hmm. can't count on him for anything. Um, And to me, the turning the turning point was when he saw he didn't he realized his son was gay and he had no idea that was happening. And that snapped him awake in some ways to say, you know, here I am with my sons and I don't even know what who they are or what their lives are. And then he mm-hmm. slowly begins to come awake. And then when they commit a murder, he <laughs> comes awake even more and um, takes them to the house and kind of rises above um, to be a stronger figure. Mm-hmm. What type of research did you have to do for this novel? And 
how did you incorporate it? Well, I mean, we, we can see if you read, but um, can you talk, uh, tell us a little bit about that process? Yeah, I, um, I tend to research as I write. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, you know, I'll be writing a page and then I'll think, well, what kind of light do I turn on a light or is there a candle or, um, so as I write a scene, um, I am aware of the time period. And then I'm aware of, I look at pictures, I Google, uh, I read other books set in that time period. I watch movies. I feel when I'm writing a book, I basically live in a world, um, so for a year and a half, I'm like living in the 30s. And throughout my day and my life, I'm always looking for things. Like today, I'm writing um, in 1890, and I want her to bake a cake. So I'm, okay, what does a stove look like? Uh, how big is the kitchen? What is, you know, some, as I walked down the street, I actually saw an antique store, and there was this old stove. And I'm like, oh, what year is that from? So I kind of fill myself up with, all the elements of what I think might influence what I'm writing Mm. and then specific things. Like I I interviewed a butcher because uh, I had to find out, well, 1930, what was up with refrigeration? um, What was the meat market like? uh, You know, the meat packing district in New York city was very vibrant. And I learned that the carcasses actually came from New Jersey. And, you know, so I had to, interview and research and read about just that element like well they're butchers how do they operate um how do they keep meat cold where does the product come from and how does it get from um downtown to uptown and you know Mm -hmm. so that that all kind of informs my process when you were writing this book had you already gotten the deal for it or were um no, no. Um, I had my first two books published with GMS Books, a small press. Uh, but I moved into, as I said, what I call literary fiction, language-driven, and also historical. So, um, I, which I did, this is actually my, I'm on my sixth book um, right now. My third book was set in the 20s about a jockey, and then uh, which has not yet been published. And then this book, uh, The Butcher's Son, set in the 30s. So I knew I was <coughs> moving in that direction. So I started looking for a publisher that was into that type of work. Mm. And, um, and then I found a match with Lethe Press when I had, not with the jockey, but with the... Um, the Butcher's Sons, I was just starting to send that around, and I read about Lafe Press, and I liked um, some of their books and some of the awards they won, and I submitted and then connected with the publisher, and then, you know, it turned out as it did. So you submitted a proposal with, like, sample chapters, or then? No, I had, com- the book was completed. by the Oh, time by I, that time, okay. Yeah, by the time I pitched it to him, mm-hmm. that book was completed, and I had mm-hmm. just pitched sent a pitch letter uh, along with uh, sample chapters and huh. and um, then he's written back and says, send me the book. And I did. And then six months later, it was like, let's do it. Wow. So, yeah, um, all part of the well, process. 
what is your what is your writing process like? Do you make yourself uh, sit down a certain? Are you writing full time? Do you make yourself sit down at a certain time a day every day? I chain myself in a room. No, I um, <laughs> I write. Um, I once saw Mary Gateskill, uh, who I like, and someone asked her that question, and she said, "Well." To tell you the truth, she said, sometimes I'm writing and I'm on and other times I'm not, you know, because I had often read like, oh, real writers write every day. And, uh, you know, probably some do, and which is amazing. Uh, I uh, tend to be more, um, I don't worry about the amount of time I write or, or, or how that it has to be every day. It's, as I mentioned, I, I'm in a world. So mm -hmm. for a year and a half, I'm in, in whatever this world I've created is that I'm writing this novel, and I'm always thinking about it. Um, so I'm kind of in the book and researching it and jotting notes all the time. Mm -hmm, and then mm -hmm. the literal sitting down and doing the work. If a few days go by and I haven't written, then I say to myself, oh, you've got to carve out an hour tomorrow. It, it has to happen. I don't care if it's seven in the morning because I do have a day job and I do have multiple things. And, um, you know, and then other times it's, I am able to write every day for a period. Um, but it's more of a feeling like, um, kind of like the gym, you know, it's like if you say to yourself, Oh my God, I haven't been to the gym in two weeks. Um, if mm -hmm. I'm realized, wait, I hadn't written in three days. Um, then I make sure I sit down and write. But it's the bigger picture that really drives me. And that began like in my my third novel where I started to mm. find my process of like, I thought started to find my voice more in my writing process and the whole stream of consciousness. And I'm not going to say it became less work, but it became more organic. It became more natural and and then that's when I realized as long as I'm in the book and I'm living it, then it will just keep getting written, um, hmm. whether I'm doing it every day or every three days or, two, you know, it, it will just, I'm just simply in it. You know, it's like the train is going, so I just keep moving. I also read a lot. It, you, you're in new school. Um, mm -hmm. They always mm -hmm. said to us, read. You have to read as much as you write. Mm -hmm. And I balked at that initially. I'm like, no, I have to keep writing. And, mm -hmm. um, but it's true. Um, I'm writing in first person now. And so I picked up all these first person books. I just started reading uh, The Girl on the Train. <gasps> I and, listened um, to that on audiobook. Yeah, yeah it, it's good. I like yeah. it. I'm really enjoying it. Um, it's, yeah, it's, and for, from the, challenge I have of the the whole point of view, like first person point of view. Um, mm -hmm. It's really been amazing to see what she does with first person point of view. Mm -hmm. um, yes, I, I make sure I carve out time to read because uh, it always inspires my writing. Okay. And I do want to say I have many things that I'm going to have to leave out that I didn't get to say, but you have... Um some you have sex scenes in here that are very mm -hmm. classily and like they're central they're very well done mm -hmm. um and so that and that i talked to another actually another writer that was doing actually 
nonfiction. But I thought mm-hmm. that they that it wasn't like it's not like um how do I say it's not. It's not like it, a lot of it is overt and, and implied, like sort of with language. And I don't know, it's just right. very, very, very sexy. I liked it. Right. Thank you. Yes, that was very intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I had to, that was very intentional. It was an, a choice, an emotional choice. And I worked with my writers group. Um, we still meet every week. And uh, because to me, it was about, um, personal discovery and I wanted it to remain um, essential and like beautiful language and led by language and led by emotion mm-hmm. and not led by mechanics or, mm-hmm. you know, passionate, but not um, like emotionally passionate and heartfelt and led from the gut and not, um, not graphic or what's the word, you know, um, um, I can't think of the word right now, but, uh, you know, m- much more mm-hmm. led by beauty, the beauty of lovemaking, um, yeah. not the graphicness of sex. And so I very mm-hmm. much strived. I mean, I had written the, the scene, there's one climactic scene in a creek where they're making love with the, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the gay characters, uh, Adeline Baguette. And I had to rewrite it a few times because my writing group kept saying, I didn't even know they were having sex. And um, so it was so <laughs> subtle that they were like, oh, it's beautiful. And the poetry and the water's rushing, but they're just standing there, right? I'm like, well, no. And so I went so far the other way, I had to sometimes push it a little, you know, add a little more detail um, mm-hmm. so that it was clear it's a passionate scene, you know. But that was... Mm-hmm. That was something that was really intentional because I wanted, I wanted um, the, the sex scenes to have like a poetry, um, mm-hmm. in, in and of themselves, because that's the kind of um, the sex for these men I think is is uh, beautiful in a way because they're each discovering something so new. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see with Dickie discovering like the newness of he keeps saying, I, I can't believe I still want to be with her again or want to see her again. You know, that he's yeah. never really connected with someone he's never like really that. been intimate or vulnerable mm-hmm. with a person. And that is what he's allowing himself to experience mm-hmm. with Eva. Um, so, yeah, he's also. I wanted him to discover it in a different way. Mm-hmm. And your writers group, are they former new school people that you continued on with or? Yes, they are. Um, we call ourselves the ponies and ah. um, the, Amy Dupchak, uh, who was in my class. We um, mm-hmm. were the original in, in the final semester. We, one of the things I think they called us a cluster. You met with your peer group. Yeah. And Amy and I were in that peer group and we had two other people that continued after uh, graduating, but people have come and gone. Amy and I are the two original members. And then soon, very soon uh, from when we started, Amanda Miller, who's nonfiction from the new school, uh, joined our writing cluster. And through the years, it's um, had people come and go, but a lot of, a lot of new school connections have remained Mm-hmm. Um, do you meet once a week? 
or yep, like what, week, what you um, oh, wow. every week for years um you know mm-hmm. there's an occasion we miss but it's been it's it's really important i mean it's it's critical and 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 um amazing really to all these years later to um yeah. still have that group thriving and you know to have people to have deadlines and to have people mm. reading in your work and to be reading theirs and to be contributing to each other and to be part of a community, you know? So when mm-hmm. you're in the midst of writing a book and, and um, hoping it works out, you know, that you've got your peers doing the same thing and supporting your journey, you know, mm-hmm. in a different so, way. So. so you guys would bring like, so is it like a workshop where one week someone will bring some stuff and the next week you guys talk about it and kind of go like that or. Yeah, we have, four uh, in our group. So one week, two people will submit and we all discuss. And then the next week, the other two will submit. And mm-hmm. we usually submit like a day or two prior to the workshop. Okay. And, um, and then we, so we workshop two people each week mm-hmm. and um, yeah, it's, it's going, it's, it's continued to inspire me. What do you think? And it's my final question for you. What do you think is your writing superpower? My writing superpower? Mm-hmm. Um, my writing superpower. Uh, well, I was just, I, I mean, I'm not sure if I understand the question, but basically that to sit down and do it. I mean, mm. if, if you mean like as a writer, what is my power? Um, yeah. What, what do you really, think is my writing is superpower is, is to sit and write. Um, I think people complicate writing. Um, and I mean, I do feel blessed with a muse and that I do just sit and things do flow. I've never had writer's block. I, I have a strong stream of consciousness. I have, uh, I'm always filled with images and, visuals and it's just constant for me which I, I feel very grateful for um, but the power really is to sit and do it um, and I, lo- I read the book The War of Art which is mm. kind of about that concept I did The Artist's Way which is kind of that concept um, you know went to graduate school and it a lot 99% of it comes down to will you just simply sit down and start you just start writing. And also I don't judge myself. I don't, I don't agonize over sentences. I don't stare and think, Oh my goodness, am I going in the right direction? I just, you know, if I write five pages and say, well, that didn't work, then I throw it out and I start a new <laughs> five pages. Um, I'm halfway through a book now and I'm like, this fourth character just still isn't speaking to me. So I'm starting over. I'm mm. like, well, let's find one that does for this. Three of the others are going great, and this one's never quite connected. So I'm like, okay, start over um, with that mm-hmm. character. But people that say to me, like, oh, how I want to write and how I write, and, how, and it's like, well, you mainly stop thinking about it and just you simply sit down and you just have to do it. You know, it's like mm-hmm. like um, carving out the time. Mm-hmm. You know, and taking the pressure off, you know, just, just simply do. I guess that was the artist's way was she 
years ago when I did that, it was like, well, you um, write three pages a day and it doesn't matter what they are. You might throw them away if you need to, but you just write. Mm-hmm. That, that, that helped me a lot. Mm. Well, I certainly am going to be going back into your collection and reading some of your other novels. Right. Um, I I did truly enjoy this one. Um, Wonderful. I was on the seat. I wanted to ask you how many, if you remember how many words this is, because even the font, I was like, this has to be like two hundred thousand words. Like, how did he, but it didn't feel like it when I was. But the font is small too, and I'm like, he really wrote this book. Yes. That was, it was a good process, that book. It was it started flowing and it was just one of those books that just really poured out of me. Like just once I started moving with it, it just mm-hmm. it just really ran and I got I really emotionally got entangled in it and mm-hmm. felt very strongly about it. And so, one thing I did great. with the the chapters which are so the chapters are short. They're so they're right. some of them are like two pages maybe, like two, three pages. And mm-hmm. I thought that was, that worked for me. And I wondered what type of conscious decision, like, the, and I'm going back and let's just, I told me, I just need to know, like, right. what, what was the choice that went to, you know, went into the chapters? Yeah, and it, it was the rhythm of the writing. I mm-hmm. didn't, I wasn't aware of the length and I wasn't thinking like, oh, this is this long, that's that long. I think because there are three characters and they were all in their journeys. It's just, that was kind of the rhythm and the energy of it and is that in each chapter like something important would happen or some turn would occur and so it it was a very energetic book for me in that way and that it was kind of a lot of emotional power going through each chapter each person and so it didn't always take long it would you know there's always something that was happening to one of them and it it just turned out that way. I, I did not plan length. I didn't, hmm. you know, have any concept of, oh, how long is each chapter? It was just hmm. the, again, that was organic. It was just like, this is what needs to happen now. And now I need to jump over here and continue with this. Hmm. Um, so, yeah. And then it just, but I, I do feel rhythms when I write and in, in a certain, each book has its own energy and rhythm and that book, you know, that contributed, that feeling, the rhythms I was working in kind of contributed to the lengths, I think. Mm. Well, I'm encouraging everyone who uh, hears this podcast to go pick up The Butcher's Sons. Yes. It is a very good, especially if you have a new school connection, if you've ever heard me say new school, and I know you have, you have to go get this <laughs> book. Um, and if you're interested in writing fiction and historical fiction, this is uh, definitely something for you. Literary fiction to to check out um did really really enjoy it and uh thank you i'm inspired by you know hearing you you. talk about your writing today and um i wish you the best of luck thanks so much i enjoyed it thoroughly isn't that just 59 minutes of writing goodness for you i hope you enjoyed it i liked talking to scott and i want to shout out Brittany, who i know i said her name wrong i think at least once (laughs) on this interview but she and i were classmates in the new school and i'm glad she reached out to me earlier this year with scott's book and i i actually it's one of one of those books that i say i would read again i really enjoyed it and i advise you to pick it up as well 
On the check-in this week, I have to tell you that I only sent one thing out, which means I have eight to go in my chunk of 20. And I'm okay with only sending one thing out because a couple things finally got published this month. So it still makes me feel a little, I don't know, vindicated is the right word, but satisfied. Like, okay, I'm still doing something. Because, you know, it takes so long for people to read and respond and finally publish when you get on their editorial calendar. And But I got some stuff out, so I'll tell you about it. A couple of them, the latest one is Pawn with Sandy Feinstein, who's my colleague at Penn State Berks. And our prose poem was published in the Lehigh Valley Vanguard Journal. And also Headland Journal, which actually is in New Zealand, which is a country. <laughs> not, it's not in the UK, as I said somewhere on my tweets uh, or Facebook. So if you saw that, just blame it on Americans being bad at math and geography, okay? So shout out to Headland Journal, who also published my um, essay, A Stranger Danger, in their issue three that came out this summer, and it's out on Kindle. Go to my website, KeishaWhitaker.com, to get both of those links. Um, I've got upcoming work next month, October 17th, supposedly in a journal, and I want to tell you, but then if they cancel it, I'm going to be like, oh, I already told you when they cancel it, so <sighs> I guess I'll wait to tell you, but it's a big deal. Yeah, so look for that. I'm still waiting for you to send me your shout outs and your submissions and what you're doing on the check-in. Tweet me at Behind the Pros. Um, email me info at Behind the Pros because I will be looking for you. Make sure you're signed up on the Behind the Pros email. I know I say that and the people on the email are probably like, she never sends any emails. Well, you know, I don't want to overwhelm you. You know, you get a lot of spam, but I'm going to get there. I have a really good idea. And so if you're not on the email, make sure you are. So you will get exclusive access to this good idea because Behind the Pros is on the come up. And if you don't believe me, believe Judith Ortiz Colfer, okay? You know who she is? Mm-hmm. If you don't know, you better ask somebody because she is the truth. And guess what? She tweeted me. She tweeted about Behind the Pros. Yes, she did. Please go to Behind the Pros on Twitter and read it for yourself. That, like, made my year. So we're going to ride that one out for a while. As always, Behind the Pros music is by UK artist Redvers West Boyle. You can find him on SoundCloud. The show is hosted and produced by me, Keisha Whitaker, from an alcove over the fireplace. Or maybe it's an alcove... Maybe the fireplace in the alcove. Well, I'm not in the fireplace. I'm standing in front of the fireplace, which is sort of like an alcove with the corner. Okay. Anyway, it's in Pennsylvania. Until next time, listen, learn, and write. <laughs>